This is Framework Leadership. I'm Kent Engel, and you're listening to Framework Leadership, a podcast about how to bring your personal life and organization to the next level. And wow, what a privilege today. I'm sitting down with Mark Batterson. Mark serves as lead pastor of National Community Church in Washington, D.C. He holds a doctor of ministry degree from Regent University and is uh, the New York Times bestselling author of 11 books, including The Circle Maker in a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day, Wild Goose Chase, and has recently released Whisper and Play the Man. His church also owns and operates Ebenezer's Coffee House, the largest coffee house, I believe, on Capitol Hill. And by the way, also serves as uh, a member of our board of trustees at Southeastern University. Hey, Mark, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, absolutely. And I have to say one of the joys of my life is learning from your leadership and serving on that board and uh, to be able to uh, serve a kingdom cause together is a ton of fun and uh, grateful for the partnership. Well, thank you. Appreciate that. And it's just uh, you, you've contributed a great deal to who we are and what we do. So appreciate that. Hey, I want to start uh, uh, by uh, talking about how uh, how a kid from Naperville, Illinois, who attended the University of Chicago to study, you know, pre-law on a basketball scholarship, you wind up actually planting a church in Washington, D.C. Walk us through how that all happened. Yeah, I was a Pearl major, politics, economics, rhetoric, and law, and thought maybe I would end up in D.C., but perhaps in a political capacity or or maybe even pursue law. But, uh, you know, can't you sometimes, uh, well, it's a dangerous thing to ask God what he wants you to do with your life. I think it's more dangerous to not ask that question. But uh, you might get surprised by the answer, and I certainly was. And I felt like God, uh, after months of really seeking the Lord, I felt like full-time ministry was what he wanted me to do. Uh, It wasn't really in our family. Now, I married into a family of ministers, but uh, it kind of came out of nowhere. And it was a huge step of faith to give up a a full-ride scholarship at the USC, transfer to a Bible college, and, and thus the journey towards ministry began. What, let me ask you this in terms of that journey, uh, you know, I mean, you know full well what our mission here is at Southeastern is, is helping people to kind of discover and develop that design they sense God has put upon their lives. And oftentimes it's experiences, it's, um, you know, good, bad, difficult, spiritual it's people God places in our lives. I mean, it's a lot of different things that kind of begin to help you solidify that call. So, so for you, as you began that journey, I mean, uh, you know, switching from that, that, you know, law emphasis to now uh, attending a Bible college, was, was there some catalyst? Were, were there people? What, describe what really created that turn. Well, I think it's always bumping into people that have a tremendous impact on you. So I had a, a father-in-law who happened to officiate your wedding uh, many, right. many moons ago, who uh, he planted, he and my mother-in-law planted a church uh, in 1967 in Naperville. And, you know, I, I think I saw um, what God could do if you plant yourself in one place and give your life to it. And so I just, I think I... I saw an example of, of faithfulness and ministry and thought, man, someday I wonder if I could do that. And I would have never guessed that it would be in Washington, D.C., 
But I would say that seeing uh, church planting and pastoring modeled by my in-laws was probably the most profound impact on me. Um, that was probably a, a key piece. And of course, then, you know, I ended up going to seminary and I'll be honest, you know, and I know I'm talking to a, a university president, but I, I went to do a graduate degree to buy time because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And, uh, and I'm so glad I did because uh, during that season, God continued to shape me. And that's where I felt a call to write, which is a whole different animal. But right. uh, it's really those two callings that I pursued for the last 20 years, the pastoring and the writing. So you, you mentioned you, you would have never guessed Washington, D.C. So, so why Washington, D.C.? What, what led to, you know, planting and, and, and beginning uh, the church there in, in D.C.? Yeah, well, it's because we, we had planned on planting in Chicago. In fact, we attempted to, and we fell on our faces. It uh, had a 25-year plan for a church plant. And of course, you know, part of it was I, I was 22 years old, and it's amazing how much you know when you're 22. You have it all figured <laughs> exactly. out. And so, you know, we went into it, I think, a little naive, and uh, that church plant ended up failing. And that's what then opened the door for us to really go anywhere and do anything. And, and, uh, we, uh, I was just reading through a ministry magazine one day and I saw a parachurch ministry in DC that looked interesting to me, made a phone call. That phone call led to a visit. And the next thing you know, uh, Laura and I are packing everything into a U-Haul and really by faith, no place to live by faith, moving to DC. And, and, uh, of course, then that's where we've been, uh, I guess now for 22 years. You know, you mentioned, um, you know, the, the failure in Chicago or, or, you know, what you had to face. And, and obviously what happens is sometimes fear, you know, fear can come in in a situation like that. And fear is, is oftentimes you're either going to use fear as a soft cushion to land or, or it's going to be a springboard to leap from that into, something new, uh, really that is, is destined for, for your journey. D how, I mean, going into now you're going into DC, you're, you're, you're wanting to plant a church there. How did you face the fear that, wow, I, I may fail here. And how did that propel you to what you did and started in DC? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. And, you know, I, I think, uh, the problem is, is that when you experience a failure, uh, you can then tend to frame things in fear. And of course, I, I know, you know, framework is, is uh, you've written a book on it and uh, you've done a lot of research on it. And fear is basically framing a situation without faith. I mean, it's framing it the wrong way. And so I'll be honest. I mean, I was scared. But he, here's what I learned. I, I learned that the cure for the fear of failure is not success. I think it's failure in small enough doses that you build up an immunity to it. And I think what I discovered is that God was there to pick us back up and dust us off and give us another chance. And so uh, when the second opportunity to plant a church came along, instead of framing it in fear, we decided let's frame it in faith. Hey, the first one didn't work, but you know what? It seems like God's given us another opportunity. Let's frame it in faith. Let's believe that God's got a plan and purpose here. 
And, uh, and then we decided, Hey, let's go for it. So we started with a core group of 19 people and, and, uh, first few years were not easy or glamorous. Uh, but, uh, we were kind of off to the races. And again, the thing that helped me was just taking a long view that, uh, we're in it. In fact, I, I prayed that God would give me the privilege of pastoring one church for life because that's what I had seen in my father-in-law. Yeah. Now, I, I, as you planted that, you also, there's Ebenezer's Coffee House. So was that a part of the intentional um, plan? I mean, how did that begin to unfold? Well, I would have never imagined that. Uh, we have a couple of core convictions. One, uh, church ought to be the most creative place on the planet. And I think what I mean by that is this, there are ways of doing church that no one's thought of yet. And a second conviction is that the church belongs in the middle of the marketplace. You know, Jesus didn't just hang out at the synagogue, hung out at wells. Wells were natural gathering places in ancient culture. And I, and I had this thought, you know, coffee houses, they're postmodern wells. And so we got this, our hands on this old crack house, which is a miracle in itself. It's a longer story than our, than I'll share in this uh, podcast format, but um, we, we had a vision to turn this crack house into a coffee house. And the reason was to create a place where church and community could cross paths. And so here we are a decade later and, you know, we've served a million customers, every penny of profit we give to missions. It's been coffee with the cause and it was not part of the original vision, but it comes out of that conviction that how does the church um, get out from behind its four walls and really be in the marketplace or in this, in, in this instance, uh, create a marketplace. And so that's kind of been our, our DNA, I guess, uh, as a church. Do you think, uh, as you reflect back now, do you think it had a significant impact in, in the influence and growth that national community has had um, has Ebenezer's been really a, a, a true key element of the relational dynamic that has allowed you to, you know, bring good news, man, to that community? Oh, it's been huge. So, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. Last year, um, I think we served uh, 6,000 homeless friends uh, here in the D.C. area. Uh, our churches is, uh, we helped 60% of refugees who re resettled in the DMV, uh, DC, Maryland, Virginia, our church helped 60% of those, um, folks get into apartments. It, it, the reason why I'm saying that is this is not a church that just kind of hangs out inside its four walls, but I think it started with this mindset of, listen, how do we be in the community? How do we hang out at wells the way Jesus did? And it has shaped our DNA. So uh, outreach is a huge piece of our puzzle. We'll take 30 plus missions trips this year. So that's a huge part of our DNA. And then what it's done is it's really set the stage for what's next. So, you know, we created this coffee house. It's, it's been voted the number one coffee house in DC several times. And, and I would say by all counts, it's been wildly successful. Well, now, uh, we own a, a castle on Capitol Hill that we bought for $29 million and we are converting it into a church campus. But we'll take about 30,000 square feet and we'll create another marketplace. It, it'll be uh, 
Ebenezer's on steroids um, and uh, it'll be next level. So we'll create restaurant and retail. Why? Well, because we want to create a seven day a week presence. And then for what it's worth, the revenue from that retail restaurant dimension will go to advance the kingdom of God. So again, I think the, the coffee house was the first small step. And now we're taking a little bit bigger step in terms of a mixed use development. And, and part of why we're doing it is because urban churches, listen, it property here costs 14 million an acre. So you have got to get creative. You have got to be entrepreneurial if you're going to swim in these waters. And so I think all of that to say, we, we don't know exactly where we're going, but we, we know that God's taken us to some places that are going to require tremendous creativity and uh and and some risk along with it yeah. And and when you look at DC, I mean my goodness, DC is a very transient city. Uh you're talking really like three communities in one. I mean, you've got your local governments, you've got the national government and then you've got an international presence and a lot of a lot of young people there. Um and yeah. and you're in an you're in that urban area, you and you have some unique challenges yet as you've said, you God has just opened door after door after door, and and you have now what eight eight campuses, and and then you're beginning to launch in these new endeavors. What what has been the consistent? What are the consistent values that have been able to really drive your your ability to tap into this transient city? Well, you know, we we had to embrace it at first because on one level, it's a little depressing when thirty percent of your people leave every year. So it feels like a revolving door. But again, that's because of demography and geography. And because historically um, we were 80 percent single 20 somethings, we're now we're now 50 percent single 20 somethings because a lot of those folks have gotten married and had families. (laughs) But, um, you know, you just have to embrace where you are and recognize that now we've got an extended family, literally tens of thousands of people who have attended this church over the last 20 years. And they're all over the world because they're with the State Department or with military or or whatever else. Um, and uh, so you just embrace kind of the transience of the city. And, and by the way, you'll appreciate this. If, if we get a student from Georgetown or American or GW for four years, that feels like an eternity to us. So, right. <laughs> uh, you know, four years is actually a long tenure. Um, but, you know, long and short of it, um, one of our campuses alone uh, here in, in D.C. at our Lincoln Theater campus, we've got 70 nationalities just in that one campus. Wow. And uh, for what it's worth, it's about uh, 5149 uh, so white would be a small minority um, in, in that congregation. And so we're working hard to really reach and reflect the city that we're in. Um, but I'll, I'll share one other conviction that we believe God's going to bless the church in proportion to how we care for the poor in the city and how we give to missions. And so we've kind of banked our bottom dollar on missions and caring for the poor. It's why we open a dream center in Ward 7. Uh $5 million dream center that was, uh, that our congregation gave generously to. And as long as we're doing those things, we just feel like God has our back because what we're doing is near and dear to his heart. And as a leader, what, what, uh, what leadership advice would you give people, ministries, organizations who really want to be more inclusive of, you know, young people of 20 somethings that, 
to really connect with them, what, what would be that, that advice? Uh, I mean, that's such a good question. And, and there are probably about seven different good answers, but if it's okay, let me just spotlight one. I, I really feel like authenticity is the new authority. Like you, mm. as a pastor, I can't just play the authority card, you know, Hey, just cause pastor says, now I'd like to think that people honor their leaders cause that's a biblical principle. But at the end of the day, I feel like there's a generation coming up and I, I think you probably have more of a pulse on it than I do because of uh, who you love and lead and who you pastor and who you president uh, at a university campus. But listen, if there's a sniff of um, anything that's not genuine or not authentic, I, I think people see right through it. And uh, I think it's so critical that we don't pretend to be perfect, don't pretend to have all the answers, but we're doing our level best to keep following Jesus, to keep growing in our faith. And, uh, and I think that connects with the younger generation more than you know, someone pretending to be perfect or, or pretending to have all of the answers. So I, that's a small, that's a thin slice. But uh, I think that's one thing that just comes to mind that, come on, let's be authentic. Let's be authentic yeah. as leaders. And uh, it's not the easiest thing to do, but I think uh, uh, emerging generations resonate with that big time. That's good. You know, the past couple of years, I mean, you're in D.C., uh, the past couple of years uh, have been incredibly divisive politically. Um, and NCC lives at the center of, of politics. You know, how, how has that impacted your congregation? Uh, how did it affect the community or how has it been affecting the community that, that you live in and have to reach? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you know that uh, Ebenezer's, our coffee houses three blocks from the Supreme court. And of course they're making decisions that, you know, affect us. And then, and then you've got the Capitol about half a mile from us and then the white house right down the road. So, you know, we just decided from the get go that uh, there's neither Jew nor Greek slave, nor free male, nor female Republican, nor Democrat. Um, <laughs> that we weren't going to endorse a candidate uh, or a party um, now that doesn't mean that we aren't going to take a biblical stance on issues that some would think are political. Uh, right. we'll do that, but we wanted to do our best to reach across the aisle. And because of it, we've got hundreds of Hill staffers. And I would say they're probably, um, split on either side of the aisle because somehow we found a way, uh, to, to blood is thicker than water is how I would say it, that political affiliation, I know it's strong. And I know for many, it like goes generations back, but it's still water. Uh, whereas our relationship with Christ, that's blood, uh, his shed blood. And that means we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And so when we walk in as the family of God, we have a, a connection that's stronger than our political affiliation. And uh, I think that's helped us. And then, yeah. you know, when it comes to racism or it comes to, uh, um, sexuality, uh, or anything in between. Like, I think just at the end of the day, you got to strive to be like Jesus, full of grace, full of truth. Grace means I'm going to love you no matter what. Truth means I'm going to be honest with you no matter what. And if you can live in the tension of that grace and truth, um, I, I think then you're being the church, then you're being a follower of Christ and some good things can happen. 
Yeah. And so, so let me press that just a little bit uh, more. I, I mean, there's been a lot of discussions about the role of, of ministers, of, of pastors and the role of the church in politics. And, you know, and you've mentioned some of the issues like, you know, on racism and, and injustice and, and on matters of things like, you know, for, for example, DACA, I know that Southeastern University, we've taken a strong stance on, yep. on urging Congress to, to create a pathway, a permanent solution so that these amazing gifted students that God has a call on their lives, like anybody, um, can, can have a chance to fulfill, you know, an American dream and pursue citizenship. Do, do you think that in, in your opinion and as a leader of, of, of ministry and church, do, do we, should we publicly take stands on, on those kinds of issues? How, how do we navigate that? Yeah, I, I think there's a spectrum uh, and I have a couple of thoughts on that. One is I think you need to know what battlefields you're willing to die on. Sure. Uh, I really respect people who have a passion for certain uh, biblical principles that they'll, they'll fight for it to the death. And listen, I believe that what they're doing is right, but that may not be my battlefield to die on. I, I hope that makes right. sense. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, and I think, uh, to be honest, I think we have to be a little bit more careful because we're in the eye of the storm. So like I'm blocks from the, the political epicenter of the world. And so because of that, I think we tend to be a little bit more uh, careful. I, I think right. some churches, you know, they might, it might be a little bit different game. If, if you're uh, in the breadbasket or, you know, you're on, uh, you know, Northwest uh, part of the country or, you know, I think, I think it's very difficult. So I'm not necessarily prescribing what we do for everybody else because of the sensitivities. Um, you know, I'll give you an example that when we were 19 people, uh, our mutual friend, Dick Foth and his wife, Ruth invited, uh, then Senator, uh, John Ashcroft and his wife, Janet. And then of course he became attorney general. Um, you know, we listen, I love him. We loved him. Um, but you also have to be careful that you aren't, uh, that you don't become a Republican church or a Democrat right, church. Right. And so here's how we've tried to approach it, you know, as it, as it relates to, uh, let's say immigration, we haven't necessarily been outspoken on policy, uh, or legislation, but we responded, uh, big time. And we have 300 people on a refugee care team. Uh, and so what we do is we celebrate, we, we ought to be more known for what we're for than what we're against. So we really right, try right. to respond by let's make a difference. And that isn't at all to say that we don't need people, um, even lobbying, e even, uh, raising right. their voice, um, just for us in the unique place that we're at. Um, we've probably taken a little bit different tactic than some churches would. Right. No, that's, that's good. I mean, it's, it's all about being contextual and understanding your context yeah. and how to, 
listen and create conversation that only provides hope and encouragement and builds faith. And I mean, you're, you're right on, you're right on, on that. Hey, you know, you've, you've written almost a dozen books. I mean, you speak around the world, you lead a large church, you, 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 you must have a good framework structure, uh, as it relates to leadership, as it relates to being disciplined in, kind of, you know, handling all that? How, how do you keep track of all of that in your life? Well, for better, for worse, in, in the beginning, we decided that, you know, in football, you have draft and develop teams, and then you have teams that kind of make a splash in free agency and try to get uh, the best player at a position. We decided early on that we, we weren't necessarily going to go after free agents, that we were going to create the right kind of culture, that we were going to grow up leaders from primarily from within, that it was going to be pretty organic. And so um, we have uh, we have really focused on leadership development. So, you know, we have 500 small group leaders. Um, well, that takes a lot of time and coaching and energy. And and uh, but what we've tried to do is just create a culture where people can get a vision from God and go for it. So we have a free market system of small groups and, and then we've employed different things. We have a protege program where 14 of our staff used to be proteges. They came in and served for a year and did an internship. And we kind of call that our farm system. So what we try to do is uh, grow people in their faith, grow people in their leadership gifting. And over time, you, you know, people, rise to the surface who are, who are gifted people who are teachable. And then those are the people that we end up hiring. And, and then usually the people who stick around the longest end up on our executive leadership team. And so, um, it's a pretty organic approach to it. And, uh, somehow, some way, I really feel like the Lord's blessed it and, uh, just grateful for the all-star team that we have. Yeah. How do you, from, from a personal standpoint, how do you, how do you create, uh, you know, that life balance that gives you time with God and your family? And, and obviously you need time to recharge. How, how do you create that balance? Well, it's not easy. You know, if anybody ever really figures that out, I, I want to know who it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, there's certain, I, I think it's putting boundaries in place. So um, just two practical examples. You know, Monday is my Sabbath and I guard it pretty religiously. So Laura and I, uh, I usually do breakfast with my son, Josiah, who's in high school. And then uh, I work out at the gym Monday mornings and kind of get all the stress from the weekend out and then do a coffee date with Laura. And then it's a day to kind of rest and recuperate. And then I'm kind of into my uh, uh, weekly rhythm Tuesday uh, through Sunday. But uh, that Sabbath, I guard pretty religiously. And then one other thing I did is, you know, I decided that um, a few years ago that I would only do 12 speaking trips. And I actually dialed it back further this year. I'm only doing five trips this year because we have a major building program that we're going to go through. So I think you just, you figure out what season you're in, you put boundaries in place. Uh, in the early days, it was, I would give the church one night a week and that's what they got. And the rest of it, I needed to be tucking my kids into bed and, and uh, helping them with homework. So you just, you got to find the right boundaries, I think, to keep that balance. What, uh, what advice would you give a, a young leader, especially a young church planter. Yeah, I think, you know, probably the first thing I would say is you're going to overestimate what you can do in a year or two. 
but you're going to mm-hmm. underestimate what God can do in 10 or 20 if you really devote yourself to it. And I think the other thing I would say, it's not about church growth. It's about personal growth. And if mm-hmm. you're growing personally, then I think whatever it is that you're leading is going to, in that wake, it's going to grow with you. And, uh, um, and probably the final thing would be, uh, uh, keep on keeping on. Cause it's not easy. Um, but, uh, you gotta keep, uh, you gotta have, it's gotta be long obedience in the same direction. I, I think a church planner has to go into it with that mindset. Yeah, it's good. Before we close out and kind of head into that lightning round, um, I want to, I want to ask you a little bit about your books. Um, you know, your, your writing, uh, your writing is unique and it's refreshing. Uh, how, how did you develop your writing style and, and, and kind of what is your process in writing a book? Yeah. You know, when I felt called to write at 22, I had just taken a graduate assessment that actually showed a, a very low aptitude for writing. In other words, whatever you do, don't write. Uh, it's, it is not a natural gifting, but I'll tell you what I did. Cause, cause God doesn't just call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And so, um, I uh, proceeded over the next 13 years to read 3000 books, but I didn't just read them. Ken, you know, I, I studied them. I figured out who I like and why I like the way they write. And so for me, I like saying old things in new ways and I like cross pollinating. So I'll take an idea from, uh, neurology or physics or history or business. And, uh, that's what I see Jesus doing with the parables. And so, uh, I I love to kind of turn the kaleidoscope and help people think in a little different way. And, uh, and so I love people like Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, I love Dan and Chip Heath, some of their writing in terms of classic writers. I love A.W. Tozer, but, you know, I just found writers that I really liked and tried to learn from their style and then over time find my own voice and, uh, for better or for worse. Um, you know, I think that's, uh, that's kind of where I landed in terms of writing. So key advice for someone who has a passion for writing, what, they, what should uh, they do? Set your alarm early in the morning. <laughs> you know, if, listen, if you're passionate about it, it's going to get you up early in the morning. And that's the only way you're going to write a book. Um, the other thing I would say is C.S. Lewis said, every life is comprised of a few themes. And so whatever it is you're going to write, you got to figure out what is that life theme? What What is it that, you know, would go on your tombstone like that? This is This is your bread and butter. It's what makes your pulse quicken a little bit was what makes your heart beat. Um, I'd write about that so that that passion can kind of keep you going back to the computer and uh, typing out those words on the keyboard. Yeah. Your latest, uh, your latest book uh, is entitled whisper. Uh, Talk about that and what you hope people take away from it. Well, you know, it's, it's one of the scarier books that I've written because it, it talks about the seven languages of God, which I realize in some theological circles is a little controversial. Um, but I'm clear, you know, in the book, the first language is scripture and it's the filter for the other six languages. But listen, God speaks through dreams and desires and doors and people and promptings and pain. And so what I'm trying to do with the book is help people really learn to discern the voice of God. And, uh, of course the whisper piece kind of comes from, uh, God speaking in that whisper or still small voice. And, uh, one little thought on that, I think the reason why God does that is that when you speak in a whisper, 
you've got to get very close to the person who's talking. In fact, you got to put your ear right by their mouth. And I think that's what God wants. He doesn't just want us to hear his voice. He wants us to hear his heart. And so speaks in that whisper. So we have to get really close to him. And I think that's when he grabs us, hugs us, loves us. And uh, so it's really about more than just hearing the voice of God. I think it's about learning to hear the heart of God. So good. Uh, well, here we are, the light lightning round and uh, just some quick questions. What, what comes on the top of your head and, uh, and we'll close the podcast out. So here we go. Now you're a great writer. You've written a lot of books, but what's the last great book you've read? You know, I'm just wrapping up the culture code and uh, anybody who leads an organization, whether it's a church or a university or anything in between, <laughs> it is about creating the right culture. And uh, the culture code has been a great read for me on that. Hey, you have a you have a, a, a day that has been cleared and mandated by your ministry team, Mark. You have to have a perfect day off. What does that look like? <laughs> I uh, I get up in the morning and I get a little uh, caffeine at our coffee house. Spend some time in the Word. Allow the Spirit to kind of rabbit trail. Uh, I probably read one or two books on that day because I uh, I love to learn. Um, I'm definitely going to get a workout in on that that particular day. Uh, but the other thing I'm going to do is, uh, listen, I might hit the National Gallery of Art here in D.C., uh, might hit the new Bible Museum. Um, yeah. I love history. I love kind of adventuring in the city. And uh, so I'd, I'd probably enjoy some of the sights and sounds that are right in my backyard as well. And speaking of history, what historical leader, living or dead, would you most like to have coffee with? You know, it's funny. It's such an easy answer for me. Teddy Roosevelt, I mean, hands down, uh, he, he read 500 books a year while he was president and yet was uh, a man's man and uh, uh, quite the uh, legendary president. Man, I would love to uh, hang out with Teddy Roosevelt. Mm. Fascinating conversation, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yes. Hey, uh, what's, uh, final question, what's your next big dream you'd like to accomplish? You know, I'll kind of go off the cuff here. Um, I don't know too many churches that have a uh, research and development arm or research and development budget, like a like an X factory for Google or, or, you know, right, uh, right. Bell Labs used to be, uh, of course, the AT&T arm. Um, I'm really dreaming these days about how do we get better at research and development as the church? Because we ought to be leading the way, not just catching up with everybody else. And so uh, we're thinking about creating a little R&D arm, a little think tank. Um, it is a new thought. And uh we don't even have it named yet, but uh, that's, uh, I think it's a big dream. Yeah, that's a great dream. Hey, Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. And for all of those who are listening, you can check out more about Mark, including where to get his books and resources at markbatterson.com. That's markbatterson.com. Again, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, uh, absolute privilege. And uh, we'll uh, hopefully see you on campus soon. All right. Thanks, Mark.
To connect with Kent, visit kentingle.com. Also make sure to follow him on Twitter at Kent Ingle and on Facebook at Kent.ingle. Thanks for listening to Framework Leadership.